All right, everyone, welcome to another episode of the Twimble AI podcast. I am, of course, your host, Sam Charrington. Today, I'm joined by Anastasis Yermanidis. Anastasis is co-founder and CTO of Runway ML. Before we get into today's conversation, be sure to take a moment to head over to Apple Podcasts or your listening platform of choice. And if you enjoy the show, please leave us a five-star rating and review. Anastasis, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. Thanks for having me, Sam. I'm super excited to dive into our conversation. We'll be talking about, of course, all things runway, uh, and in particular, the work you're doing around generative images and generative video. But before we get to that, I'd love to hear a little bit about your story and how you came to work in the field. Yeah, absolutely. So my story has been a mix of working in computer science and working in the arts. So I studied computer science for my bachelor's degree. I worked in the industry in different startups as a distributed systems and ML engineer. But at the same time, I was always very interested in how can we apply kind of emerging technologies and specifically machine learning and specifically convolutional neural networks at that point to different creative use cases. And so I was always very obsessed with this idea of like creating artwork with uh, artificial intelligence from kind of the very, like, from like when maybe when I was in high school, I I read a book called Introduction to Neural Networks that really, and at that point, neural networks were n- not even kind of the preferred method of choice. It was uh, support vector machines, but I was r- really enamored by the idea of neural networks that can essentially learn from data and be able to perform tasks that they have not been explicitly supervised to perform. And so I was always trying to do different experiments at, at creating images and, and videos using Machine learning, I tried to use like multi-layer perceptrons to generate images when like 10 years ago and that really didn't work, but I was, I kept, <laughs> I kept trying and every few years I kept like checking on the field to see if we were there. And it seems we're at that point now, later than I was thinking, but we're finally at this point where like those models are producing really, really compelling results and very exciting to, to work on this field. Yeah, 10 years ago was right at the big ImageNet moment for deep networks. Exactly, yeah. So the AlexNet and ImageNet kind of revolution really brought back neural networks into the conversation after maybe a decade of them not not being as well respected as a machine learning method. Since then, like I think another big moment, especially for the field of creative AI and creative application machine learning was the Pix2Pix model. That was a conditional image generation model that essentially allowed you to take a depth map or an edge map or a semantic segmentation map and turn it into a photorealistic image. And that also really opened up a lot of kind of the possibilities for how much control you can have about around what you're generating. And that was also a big inspiration behind how we're thinking about the Gen 1 model. Yeah, yeah. I'd love for you to continue kind of riffing on the big moments in the evolution towards, you know, what we're seeing today with all of these creative models. It strikes me that Pix to Pix was one, GANs was a big one, at least in you know the research community. Let's see what else? The style transfer work was really interesting. What are the other things that were kind of top of mind moments for you? Yeah, I think those that you mentioned, absolutely. Like Runway, kind of a bit of background of how Runway started. All three co-founders we met in grad school at an art and technology program at NYU. And kind of our main focus then was to use those technologies that you just mentioned and those models that you just mentioned too. At that point, it was really difficult for artists to get started using those models in their practice. So basically spending 90% of their time 
just setting up the dependencies and making sure that like CUDA and CUDINET was installed and everything else before they could make work with those models. And so we started building open source tools and different methods for making it easy to use those models in a variety of creative workflows for filmmakers, for artists, for creatives. And we're using a lot of those models that you mentioned, like peaks to peaks. We use GANs, we use style transfer methods, and even even text generation, like RNNs at that point, LSTMs, just to figure out like what are by broadening kind of access to those models, we always were surprised by the ways people that do not necessarily have the technical background understanding of those models work, but really had the intuition about how to get those models to, to produce interesting results and brought their own set of experiences into using those tools. And so we always found that's been a consistent thing of Runway is the moment we create an interface or a simplification around how to use those models, we see a real expansion in actual the use cases that those models find. And that has been consistent across the journey of Runway until now with the Gen Run release, where we did a lot of internal testing for the model and like how trying to uncover different use cases for it. But the moment we started rolling it out to artists, we still were uh, quite surprised by all the amazing things that people have created in just a few weeks. Yeah, we did a couple of years ago this event called Twimmelfest that was kind of this community-oriented AI conference. And you guys, uh, in particular, your co-founder, Cristobal, was gracious enough to do a workshop to kind of walk a group of us through kind of using Runway for you know, image generation at the time. For those who weren't, who didn't have the opportunity to attend that, you know, give us some background on the, the tool and how it's been used. Yeah, absolutely. So Runway, a bit of context on Runway as a company. So we are a full stack AI company that's uh, doing both research in generative models for image and video, but also deploying them in real use cases and in a variety of tools that creatives and video uh, editors, filmmakers can use to create content. So Runway has a variety of what we call the AI magic tools that allow you to perform different tasks in a creative workflow. One of the most popular tools are Runway is called Green Screen, and it allows you to perform what's technically called interactive video segmentation, but in the video editing world, it's called rotoscoping. And it's the process of separating a person or an object from a background in a video in a temporally consistent manner. So this is a very core aspect of any video workflow, and it's a very time-consuming aspect and, and not a particularly enjoyable aspect of you need to do that in order to, for a variety of like really compelling effects, to, to basically have control over how you're editing a video and like deeper, apply different effects on different parts of the video. But in order to get there, you need this really time-consuming effort traditionally of going through every frame of the video and then manually labeling the subject of the video. So this is kind of one example by which like Runway is really saving folks a lot of time, and especially for folks that need to deliver content at like really quick turnaround times, being able to do this task in five minutes instead of five hours really allows you to kind of speed up your workflow and turn different ideas in, into outputs in a much more streamlined way than more uh, kind of traditional video editing. Mm -hmm. You know, talk a little bit more about that. I, I think when I have thought historically about Runway, been thinking of the company as kind of charging towards this vision of creating tools for creatives, but I wasn't aware of kind of practical uses that folks are 
It sounds like you're describing a world in which it's a tool for professionals that are working in the field and they're doing it right now. Is that the case? And, and elaborate on that a little bit more. Yeah, absolutely. So we have teams of professional creators that are using Runway every day to create content. A few examples are the um, CBS is an active user of Runway. We have a few teams inside C- CBS using Runway, but one specific I want to mention is the team that does the graphics for the late show with Stephen Colbert. They need to, sometimes they might get an idea that's delivered to them kind of at, uh, during like noon and they have to create a video piece or a sketch within a few hours for the show that day. And so they've been using Runway a lot, specifically our video editing AI magic tools to be able to perform those tasks in a much more efficient manner. And so be able to turn ideas that might traditionally require like a week of planning into actually the the, the today's show. Another example is the movie Everything Everywhere All at Once. This was a kind of very interesting case where traditionally movies that employ a lot of VFX shots are require like teams of like hundreds of VFX artists working, like spending maybe days on just like one particular like 30 second segment. This was and And that movie was essentially a two hour long stream of VFX work, right? (laughs) Exactly. So that team was obviously incredibly talented and it was a team of less than 10 people that actually worked on the VFX for the entire film. And that was highly unusual for a film like that. And the way they kind of approached the the VFX creation behind this movie was just like figuring out like what are all the tools that we can use to speed up that, that that workflow and how can we collaborate faster and not require kind of that like work with like a much more limited resources. And so they discovered Runway as a tool that would let them do specifically kind of the rotoscoping behind a lot of the VFX shots. And this allowed them to really move a lot faster in creating the shots for, for this film. And it was also very collaborative. There was just be operating as a small team. They're able to kind of iterate on individual shots a lot more than a traditional kind of VFX pipeline where it requires a lot more long-term planning since you're actually managing like those large teams that are doing kind of the VFX work behind this film. And so that was a really nice surprise to see Runway being used to create such a, a such an amazing film. And were you supporting them through the process or was it literally a surprise the movie came out and you saw in the credits or something like that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was a total surprise for us. <laughs> we actually saw a Twitter thread when one of the directors behind the, the film was, was mentioning how all the VFX for the film with such a small team. And so we immediately guessed they might have been using Runway too as part of the VFX workflow and just we reached out to them and it turns out that they did. Oh, that's amazing. Congrats. <laughs> so in the CBS case, you mentioned AI magic tools. Talk a little bit about the individual tools that are part of that package, that product, and what they allow the users to do. Yeah, so we have a variety of AI magic tools that allow you to perform different like creative workflows within Runway. So some examples of that are we have a tool called Green Screen that allows you to do interactive video segmentation on video. We have text-to-image tool that allows you to generate images from a text description. We have Infinite Image, which is a particularly compelling uh, interface that allows you to expand an image arbitrarily and like imagine how does, for example, a vertical image look if it was a widescreen or um, kind of create a really panoramic shot from a single like portrait shot. So all those tools incorporate a variety of models behind them. Some of them are based on generative tools. Some of them are more 
around like workflow automation. So for example, we have a tool that makes it easy to like remove silence from a video or a tool that like allows you to detect different scenes and more faster kind of edit uh, a long video by identifying salient parts of the of the video. So the way we think about building tools at Runway is like working very closely with creatives and then just observing them using either Runway or using existing other tools and just seeing like what is actually taking them the most time and what is particularly tedious and unenjoyable. Like we don't want to take away the parts that are really enjoyable and involve a lot of creative decision-making, but rather we want to remove all the parts that kind of separate people from like the flow state and have people really feel like they can turn ideas into reality a lot faster. So can you talk a little bit about, you said that some of those are workflow and some of those are models. Can you talk about some of the AI technologies that power the tools? Absolutely. So around when we have a, a research team that's actively working on the variety of models, but particularly on generative models on the image and video space. And the way we think about kind of developing new models is creating some really powerful base models that then we fine-tune for specific use cases and specific creative workflows. And so we, uh, the most recent kind of iteration of that was the Gen 1 model, which allows you to take an existing video and then apply a, a prompt that's either a text or an image prompt to transform it in, into a new video. And that's a model that's kind of been developed for the past few months and, and allows you to really has a variety of different ways you can use it from taking a mock-up or a storyboard of a scene and then translating into a photorealistic or stylized output or to be able to replace a character in an existing video by using an image prompt of another character. So this is one example of a model that's been kind of actively worked on by a research team. And it's also kind of continuously being improved as we're rolling out and getting feedback from different users. Yeah, this is another great example of me kind of learning more about Runway. I, I thought of what you were doing, at least at the time, was almost like a hugging face for creative models. Like you had a bunch of off-the-shelf models and you can choose those and apply them to different images and things like that. Uh, at least that was part of the product as I remember it from a couple of years ago. It was great to learn that you're developing your own models. And you know, you mentioned Gen 1. I haven't had a chance to play with it, but I've looked at some demos and I've been poking around the Discord and some of the things that people are creating with that are incredible. I think one of the demos that jumped to mind was, uh, and this is maybe something that like a investor or collaborator tweeted, take a webcam video of yourself, like doing some martial arts kind of thing, and then like transform that into some animated, you know, almost like, you know, cinemagraphic movie. Really, really cool stuff happening. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, what you mentioned exactly right, we started, so when Runway started, it was closer to maybe a model hub that specifically targeting creative use cases, but allowing you to use a variety of pre-trained models to perform different tasks, uh, specifically on image and video. So we were seeing folks using Runway to stylize individual images by applying style transfer or to generate new images with, at that point, primarily GAN models. And what we kind of quickly discovered was that it was sometimes like a lot of the pre-trained kind of off-the-shelf models could get you 80% of the way there. But the moment you required additional control or you wanted like uh, higher fidelity results, you were very limited by those models. And so that led us to kind of very early on think about building our own in-house research team. Because I, I believe this 
having this full stack approach to building machine learning products is really key because if you treat the model as just an API that you uh, have no kind of control over how it's working internally or how it was trained or ability to iterate on it, then you're actually very limited in how far you can push in terms of the, the quality that you can get or the level of controllability. And so this led us to build our own in-house research team a few years ago and just focus entirely on, on building our own models to support those use cases. Can you talk a little bit more about the process, the effort, the evolution of, of Gen 1, what that research process looked like, what the early versions, I guess maybe starting from the end, is the thing that you ended up creating what you were originally setting out to create or you know, did it evolve and take some twists and turns along the way? Yeah, it definitely evolved. Uh, we were very keen on uh, video generation. Uh, we think there is so much potential the moment you have models that can generate like temporally consistent video for a variety of use cases. But the way we, what we originally thought would be the winning approach did not end up being the winning approach and the specific kind of way in which the Gen 1 model currently works was not entirely anticipated. It was just the result of just running a lot of experiments and just seeing what the, both what the quality of the results were, but also how folks within the team were able to create and control the results. And so something specific about the Gen 1 model is that it uses depth information as the as one of the main inputs to determine the structure of the final output. And that was not a decision that we had originally made, but it was more just by trying out different conditioning methods for those models. We found that depth actually gave a very good balance behind between like ability to control and prompt the model with kind of a strong prior that is the input video, but also not allowing kind of the expressiveness and being able to really deviate from the original style significantly. So it was a good proxy in that regard, in finding that flexibility behind control and kind of imagination and variety of outputs. There's definitely more more to do and like we're actively working on other ways of conditioning those models or other ways of controlling their outputs. But that's very fundamental to the way we think about building new models is thinking both about the base model and capabilities of it, but also what are all the conditioning methods that really make sense from a user's perspective and an artist's perspective. Because being able to just generate one compelling result is one thing, but being able to generate a result that really kind of matches and aligns with your your levels of control and like what you're envisioning is another piece entirely. And only by working with creatives actively, you can actually understand how to build those models that allow the right level of control. The depth conditioning that you're describing, was that done as part of kind of end-to-end training of a single model or do you, are you having, using some kind of hierarchical approach, depth estimation applied to a frame and then feeding that into a downstream model? Yes, exactly. So we have a paper where we describe the approach behind uh, Gen 1, but essentially we use a cascade of different models and one of them is a depth estimation model applied on the frames of the video and that's kind of fed into our uh, a latent diffusion model that turns those depth maps into uh, into photorealistic and temporally consistent uh, output. Can you talk about some of the other elements of the model? Yeah, totally. So the model is... A latent diffusion model, we, it's an evolution of some of the work that we did last year where we went for image synthesis, uh, but it's adapted with temporal connections to be able to, to generate not just one kind of photorealistic image, but rather uh, be a temporally consistent series of frames. So we, we started from 
latent diffusion model and that we trained it on, on, on videos to be able to really understand like the specifics of how to interpret motion, how to understand like movement in a, in a shot. So this is still something we're looking to kind of further improve and extend to be able to also handle like really kind of longer sequences of video as well and really temporally consistent, let's say, uh, hour-long films is, is, is the goal to which we're aiming for. Yeah, you've mentioned temporal consistency a few times. Elaborate on, you know, what specifically you mean there, the, the challenges that trying to achieve temporal consistency presents and some of the ways that you achieve it, the paper and the product. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the issues with image generation models when applied to video is that if you try to, let's say, take a input video, extract all the frames, and then apply an image generation model on each of those frames individually, even if you try to keep all the other parameters fixed, you're still going to get like really like noticeable discontinuities between each of the outputs. And there is ways in which folks have tried to solve it by taking that initial output of the image generation model and then applying it to a method that's specifically for temporal stability. But that ends up actually being very limiting, being uh, having to do this like cascade of two models to one for just the image-based generation and the other for ensuring the temporal stability. So this is by training one model that actually has kind of temporal connections and temporal attention within its architecture to be able to generate the frames at once. It allows you to maintain some of the like fidelity of the image generation model, but also in a way that's actually providing temporal consistency. And one of the special limitations of the image-to-image methods on video is just the way it can handle animation. And so this is a very powerful aspect of Gen 1, is it, it can generate animation in a variety of different styles. So you can, being able to generate a hand-drawn animation or claymation or uh, other different styles is very difficult if you just use an image-to-image model because you really need to model not just the content on a frame-to-frame basis, but also the specific animation style and the way that style really is, is reflected in, in the motion of the scene. So if you have a hand-drawn animation, you would expect the brush strokes to kind of change over time and not full temporal stability. But if you have, if you want to generate like a photorealistic video, then you would expect kind of full temporal stability. And Gen 1 is able to model those differences based on the kind of animation style that you're generating. The other aspect behind Gen 1, and it's an aspect that's being explored a lot by our kind of early Discord testers, is the ability to control how much you want the conditioning of the model to actually affect the output. So we have a parameter that's applying blur to the depth map that's fed into Gen 1. And by having a more blurred depth applied to the model, you can basically, it's almost as if you're saying to the model, like, take the depth information as input and conditioning, but don't follow it too strictly. And so allow for more space to kind of imagine some of the details of the motion. Yeah, it seems like the parameters offer a surprising degree of flexibility. Like you can tell the model to focus on the background, you can tell it to focus on the foreground to varying degrees. You can sense of like a slider between how strongly you want to transfer the style of the kind of the style target image. And again, you see some pretty, some really interesting results looking at, you know, the way folks are applying those those different knobs. Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's essentially what we're aiming for. We want Gen 1 to be a very general model and allow you both 
for use cases that involve producing kind of animated results, but also to produce like a photorealistic video. And by adding those levers of control, you can determine like how much how much is temporal stability important to you versus photorealism, or how much do you want the structure of the input video to be maintained in the output video. And we found that having those knobs of control is really is really important because you can't fully anticipate exactly what people are trying to get out of the model. And one of the things that I noticed is that the model, at least via the the, the interface on Discord, like your clips are limited to like five minutes. It's like five minutes plus a logo. Uh, sorry, five seconds plus a logo or a few seconds. Is that a economic constraint? Is it a a model constraint? Tell me a little bit more about where that comes from. Yeah, so Gen 1 is currently in like an early research phase. And so we're trying to make sure that we have enough infrastructure to support all the usage that's being done. And also that we, we're working on methods to ensure longer beta generation. So that's a limitation of the specific way we're handling inference in, in the early rollout. But we actually have already developed ways in which we can handle longer video generation that's going to be soon rolled out to users as well. So this is a kind of early limitation of the, of the first model that we rolled out. But we're actually kind of working on updates of the model to be able to handle longer videos that should be rolled out to users soon. And in spite of that, folks, I guess... Yeah, maybe this is an interesting kind of adjacent area to the idea of temporal consistency, but folks have been able to create very long videos, at least very long relative to the three seconds or five seconds by kind of splicing together individual runs. And that temporal consistency that we just talked about is kind of maintained across multiple runs of the, the model. Yeah, so what we've seen folks is basically creating whole like entire short films by just kind of in, by feeding the model in like three second shots. Also, in general, like in films, most shots are a few seconds long. That's a very, usually don't have very long shots in a film, but rather you have quick succession of short duration shots. So even as we support longer duration, we still expect that the way most folks are going to approach making video is really trying to generate a sequence of contemporary and content consistent shots that might be different camera angles or different aspects of the action that uh, is being generated. And so that's also something that's kind of validated in the, in the way that folks are using the tool right now, where it's really surprising like how some folks are really shooting an entire like fantasy or like science fiction film in their living room by having themselves kind of reenact different scenes of, of, of this film. and it's really the level of idea to reality latency is really like dropping quite significantly when you can so easily like mock up those ideas and, and see like what makes sense from kind of a filmic point of view. You also, in addition to allowing folks to transfer styles from images, you allow them to transfer styles from a text description using Clip. Can you talk a little bit about the way that you use Clip with the model? Yeah, absolutely. So the way we use Clip is essentially very similar to the way that it's being used in earlier latent diffusion work. So we use Clip as a conditioning mechanism in kind of cross-attention layers of the denoising unit that's actually performing denoising process in a diffusion model. So we, we're trying to make it possible to be able to use both text and image prompts because we think that 
they provide different ways of actually controlling the outputs. And so this is actually something where we're rolling out soon where the ability to be able to use multiple conditioning methods of so both text clip embeddings, but also image clip embeddings at the same time to be able to further control the outputs of the model. And this usually, if you have a visual reference that might, let's say, depict a character and then a text reference that actually depicts something about the setting or the action of what you're generating, you really can get a lot more flexibility than just having one prompt or one visual reference or, or one text uh, input. With Gen 1, there are different modes of operation. Can you talk a little bit about those? Yeah, so the model is, we have one base model that's performing all those operations, but we wanted to, the way we've seen with like when you're rolling out a new model is it, there is a lot of exploration that needs to be done to understand how to use it effectively. And so we provided a few kind of recommended ways of controlling the model as a way to encourage that initial exploration and guide it a bit better. So it's underlying the same model, but there is a few different ways that we identified that's really compelling to use. There is render mode, which is allowing you to take an untextured 3D render of a scene and then pass it through Gen 1 to generate a photorealistic or stylized version of that of that render. And we've seen that with people making like very quickly making 3D scenes in, in Blender, just like the outline of a city and then having kind of a camera motion that kind of has like a drone footage to the city and then passing it through Gen 1 to, to generate a, a dystopian landscape or a fantasy or a solar punk city. So that's one. We have storyboard mode, which is kind of the analogous of render mode, but it's more with like physical objects. So let's say you can take a stack of books and then making the shape of a city or of something else. And then you apply Gen 1 and you similarly turn that into photorealistic landscape or any other kind of setting. We have mask mode, which allows you to perform, to add like a special mask in addition to the other input to the model. So this allows you to only control a specific part of the video. So for example, we've seen folks take a selfie video and then keep the background constant, but rather transform themselves into an animated character or do the opposite. So maybe you want to keep the foreground constant, but rather make the background uh, look like a painting. And so this, the mass mode kind of allows you to, allows you to do that. With the storyboard mode, I may have missed that. That is that allowing you to take a sequence of static sketches and turn those into an animated or a uh, video clip without the kind of a primary video? It's closer to, let's say you want to you wanna create a video of a city. And mm -hmm. instead of one, one option is you need to create a 3D render of that city and then pass it through Gen 1. Another option is you literally take a stack of books or boxes in your room and then you put them in the kind of the shape of the city that you want to create. And then with your phone, okay. you basically shoot kind of panoramic view, kind of footage kind of going over your fictional city. And then you pass it through Gen 1 to actually uh, turn it to a photorealistic uh, result. And we've seen different ways in which people have been kind of creating like, like cutouts of different objects or just to simulate, let's say, being inside an airplane and looking out to the sky or kind of a, a really, really creative variety of different things that people have, have made. Very cool. Yeah, I wonder your thoughts on the, I guess, the alignment questions that come up when thinking about generative AI tools. Like, I think deepfakes is something that you might have to be concerned about with a tool like this. 
how do you think about that as a company? Yeah, so alignment is kind of very, very core to the way we're thinking about deploying those models. We have a team that's dedicated to quality alignment and safety questions as we, and this is why we're also approaching the rollout of models like Gen 1 in this gradual way of just getting feedback from like a small group of testers and then kind of expanding from there and like monitoring things kind of every step of the way. We think there's a lot of different safeguards that you can put in place in every part of the model kind of deployment lifecycle from data side to the training side to the inference side. So making sure on the inference side that you use a kind of content moderation tools to make to like automatically identify content that might be harmful is one and thinking of on the kind of more alignment side of things of making sure that the intention of the user is captured by the output. This is also an area where I think we're we're still on the image and video generated model side. We're still earlier than we are, let's say, on the language side. And this is an area where we're really trying to to be ahead of the of the, of the game and think of ways in which we not only think about how to provide like photorealistic and quality outputs, but outputs that actually align with like the text form that you provided or an additional me- guidance mechanism you provided. And so, well, one aspect to that is just developing benchmark sets that are representative of the kinds of use cases that the model will have and like extensively testing against those benchmarks as we roll out new models. Another aspect is monitoring the usage of the tool by collecting metrics around very specific kind of measures of image text alignment that we're we're tracking of kind of on average on kind of the the way the model is being used. How much does the um, image content align with the text prompt that the, the user has provided? So, so these are things that we're kind of constantly monitoring and trying to, with every new version of the model, thinking of how do we improve the, those. And it's it's at any part of this kind of whole pipeline that you can add additional mechanisms to further ensure that. Mm-hmm. Do you see something like RLHF applying here? I can imagine kind of ranking videos that the model produces and having labelers order them and kind of applying a similar kind of feedback loop into the model. Yeah, I think uh, RLHF is is one approach to improving the models based on feedback. But I think kind of more more broadly thinking about how do you kind of apply different ways of quality control across the different stages of the training is kind of how we're approaching it. So both collecting feedback on how the model is working and getting more both on the quantitative side of just understanding like how often do the outputs of the model are satisfactory or between like two outputs of the model, which one is is preferred. That's one approach uh, to train kind of a reward model around around that and then uh, use that in training. But it's also just, I think just very often just qualitative feedback, especially for image and video is equally important. Sometimes it's really hard to measure some of the nuances of a visual result in quantitative measure. And a lot of the models that we've seen for kind of assessing kind of the aesthetic quality or technical quality of visual content tend to have a lot of shortcomings. So still a lot of what we do is just like visually inspecting the results of the models and then trying to apply like a kind of photographer's eye to see like what's missing in terms of the composition of the image or the details. And especially for the details that the human eye is especially paying attention to. And adapting based on that, thinking of ways we can tweak the architecture, or thinking of ways we can tweak the inference process to incorporate 
kind of additional checks and additional optimizations. So a lot of that part uh, that is not fully automated, I think it really involves a lot of human in the loop in the way we're retraining the models to further address some of the kind of quality shortcomings of the current models. Well, Anastasis, there was one more thing I wanted to, to ask you about. You recently hosted a film festival. Absolutely. So yeah, tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so we had our first AI film festival in New York two weeks ago. It was the first time to our knowledge that this AI film festival was created just to showcase all the amazing work that people have been doing in the field and all the, the diversity and variety of content that people have been able to create. We, we're also hosting a new AI film festival in San Francisco to kind of showcase the same films in a different audience. And we're hoping to continue running those film festivals for the coming years. We really are, we're impressed with the amount of submissions that people have made to the festival and also with just like how varied the content is that people have been creating and how diff like different each of the short films was. So we really are trying to start the conversation of AI films as being kind of first-class citizens in kind of the art world and film world. And the AI Film Festival is a way to draw more attention to all the amazing work that folks have been doing. And it started as something that was kind of a throwaway idea a few years ago of like, let's create a film festival just to showcase all the people, things that people have been made with those models. And last year it kind of became a reality and we started planning it. And it was a really, really successful first run. And we're hoping to have an even, even bigger festival next year. That's awesome. Are other films viewable online? So they will be viewable online after the San Francisco. San Francisco one? Awesome. Awesome. Well, Anastasis, this is a first for the podcast. We just spoke a few days ago and here we are back again, but it is totally characteristic for these crazy AI times we live in. We were just speaking about Gen 1 and a few days later, Runway announces Gen 2. Of course, we want to include that in the conversation. So super excited to have you back to dig into some of those details Last time when we talked about Gen 1, there were different modes of operation or ways that you envisioned it being used. Do you have a similar way of thinking about Gen 2? Are there different modes that are supported? Absolutely. So there is a few modes that we've identified. I'm sure as we are allowed to access for Gen 2, we're going to uncover new modes. But essentially, the primary mode is just using a text prompt. You generate a video based on that text prompt. But we support other ways of conditioning the model. So for example, you can provide just an image prompt of, say, a landscape and then generate a drone footage of navigating that landscape. And you can also provide both a text prompt and an image prompt. And there is a few different ways you can use that mode. But one of the ones that we think is most compelling is you can provide a text description of a scene and then an image of a character. And then you will see whatever is described in a text prompt, having that character perform the action that's described in a text prompt. So the possibilities for that are quite vast of just being able to generate a consistent series of shots where the same character is going through different situations that are described by different text prompts. That's pretty amazing. Can you talk a little bit about the key research challenges and accomplishments that went into Gen 2? Absolutely. As you can imagine, the um, architectures and the kind of infrastructure behind Gen 2 is similar than Gen 1, but we needed to scale some of the model details to be able to make that work. We actually, when we started really the um, training kind of video generation models at large scale around the middle of last year, 
text to video was one of the first use cases that we were testing. But at that moment, we weren't quite able to get the level of like coherence and temporal consistency that we were aiming for. And as we saw some of those key challenges around for temporal consistency for the release of Gen 1, we also started revisiting this idea of just being able to generate a video from just text and not require the structure of an input video. And we saw that things really started to work in a way that they didn't before. So I would say there were a lot of challenges around temporal consistency that we also saw at early versions of Gen 1 and that we, as we rolled out access, we saw users facing and we worked to resolve them. And the Gen 1 model was basically being updated. We pushed a new update of the model on a weekly basis. And some of those solutions that we found, then we translated into the use case of not providing a video conditioning and just providing just a text conditioning to the model. And can you share at a high level, like how you overcame those particular challenges? I think we talked a little bit about this last time, but was it a particular technique or approach that finally got the temporal consistency to the level where it was usable for Gen 2? Yeah, I would say some of those details are described in a research paper that we published around the Gen 1 model. I would say the main difference between Gen 1 and Gen 2, and there's a few differences in, in terms of the whole training pipeline and the model itself, but it's just scaling up the model was kind of part of the, the approach that we took to make sure that okay. since now you don't require the, the depth information of an initial video now, the model basically needs to to use a larger model to be able to uh, have an understanding of how how do videos look like, both in terms of the kind of structural consistency of the scene, but also how does movement animation looks looks like. And that's something that we saw that in smaller versions of the model, we saw a lot of cases where, for example, you might have a person walking in a scene and then the person might get transformed to another person in the middle of the scene. So you had a lot of those artifacts, and as we scaled the architecture, we saw that like the those were no longer happening. Is Gen two a version increment on Gen one, or is it a separate model? We like to think of it as a separate model. Essentially, I, I would imagine that both models are going to be used in conjunction. So there are some cases where you would need the kind of Gen one approach of having a video and maintaining the structure of that input video. Mm -hmm allows for a lot of control over the farm. So you really have that degree of freedom of deciding like what is the initial footage that you bring to the model. But Gen 2, obviously the barrier to entry is lower because now you don't need to shoot any footage or you don't need to create the 3D render that you pass to the model. So I would imagine that the way the final workflow will look like is going to be a combination of both approaches. Got it, got it. And with Gen 1, there are some limitations in terms of the length of the video, just a few seconds. Is it the same with Gen 2? Those will be, we actually, I think by the time this recording will be out, we'll have an update to Gen 1 that addresses those limitations as well. So you're going to be able to generate much longer sequence of video. And a lot of those updates will also translate to Gen 2. Gen 2, we're really focusing on the more unconditional generation part of things. And mm -hmm. on the Gen 1, we're really trying to focus on the, the duration, which was kind of the, the main source of feedback that we saw. But a lot of the learnings to be able to generate longer coherent video will translate to the Gen 2 model as well. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, what I was thinking was in the case of Gen 1, you could record your long video and have little snippets of it processed and then stitch those back into a single cohesive video. In the case of Gen 2, where you're generating a video from text 
how are you even able to indicate some kind of continuation of a scene or something like that? Uh, is there like a seed that you can copy from one video to the next that will have it start at the same place? I don't know if that's even something like that's even possible. Yeah, I would say like folks came up with like really creative ways of overcoming the three second duration limit of just, I think using the same seed on multiple generations works, but there's still a discontinuity between the each of the kind of three second segments. So you really need some kind of consistent reference that the model can use to be able to, to know that, like to maintain the structural and like kind of color and style consistency of the of the first segment. So that was... That was kind of the, the the challenge that we're trying to solve, and there's we tried the, a few different approaches, and in in some cases we saw that they consistently kind of fail over time. But we have one approach that has worked really well, and that's what we're going to be rolling out to production very soon. Okay, and that's for both Gen One and Gen Two. It's the same approach. Yes. And is Gen Two is it accessible now to folks, or what's the, kind of the rollout strategy or the rollout timeline? Look, they're all the uh, strategy is very similar to Gen 1. I think it worked really well for us to be able to roll out them all in like initially a very small group of users and then a larger community on Discord and then and then to the rest of kind of their one-way platform. And so that's going to be happening over the coming weeks as well with Gen 2. Gen 1 is going to be ahead by a month in the timeline, but the timeline will look very similar. Got it. Got it. So it sounds a little bit like wanting to, to get a stake in the ground in this this exciting AI environment, maybe had you, you know, just put it out there for folks to to know what you're working on? I think, yeah, the, the main thing for us is like every time we working on a model on the research side of things and deploying it to a real world use cases is always, there's a big gap between the two. And every time we roll, we pursue this kind of real world deployment, we learn so much more than something that's more in a closed research state. And so we're, we're very eager to see how Folks are going to use Gen two and iterate on the model from there. So this is this is why we're we're pursuing kind of this rollout strategy as well for Gen two. Got it, got it. And it sounds like the, you know, again, the timeline is pretty compressed from the last time we spoke. Like, how do you how do you identify that? Hey, now's the right time to announce this new product. Yeah, I would say that's the. The tricky thing about research is always you never know when it's going to be at the level of results that you are aiming for. And so the the only thing you can control and the only the thing that we focus a lot at Runway is how many experiments do we run every week uh, or every month. Um, and so like we've been constantly retraining tens of models every week. Most of the experiments that we, tra- that we try don't succeed. So... The text to video kind of use case and model is something we've been we've been trying for a long time and and now we found got the fidelity of results that we that we were hoping for and so this felt like a good time to start the rollout process but yeah we actually were not expecting to be <laughs> announcing the new version <laughs> of the model so so soon when the model is ready it's ready and and and, and we want like we're very eager to get it out to the hands of users and see what they what like uh, creatives are going to do with it so That's so awesome. this felt like a good time to start that I guess I have one more question. Is, is Gen 3, is that going to be out next week? <laughs> uh, no, I, 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 I don't believe so. We're going to take a break for now. I think we have enough models running. Do you know what, what's next in terms of you know problems and use cases? I mean, the large motivating vision for us is we're going to generate a narratively coherent feature-length film. So imagine like a two-hour film 
with all the modalities in place. So both both the visual aspect, but also sound and dialogue and everything else. So that's the long-term plan. We don't know where we're going to get there. It's some, some, some things seem to be taking longer than we expect. Some things actually take a lot less than we expect, but this is what we're aiming towards. And so we're going to see more updates that are going towards that vision over the coming months. Well, once again, Anastasis, thanks so much for taking the time to chat and catch us up on what Runway's been up to. Thank you, Sam. Really enjoy the conversation. Thank you. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.